Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wool on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. We talk a lot on the podcast and certainly on TechDirt itself about social media, trust and safety related issues and all sorts of stuff around that. And especially, you know, spend a lot of time talking about the trade-offs involved. And uh, we certainly often criticize the various platforms for their approaches and hope that they will do a better job. But similarly, we will often criticize top-down mandates from government that often fail to take into account the realities and the trade-offs involved uh, and the sort of dynamic nature of how all this works and how the different companies explore different, different options and try different things and how they work for different sites with different audiences and different approaches. There have been a few really interesting experiments, I think, in terms of trying to figure out some best practices um, that might apply across the board to a, to a larger number of platforms. Um, one example of that that we've talked about in the past is the Digital Trust and Safety Partnership. Um, however, there are some other examples out there and other attempts to, to do interesting things in this vein. Uh, I recently met Ravi Iyer, who's a psychologist and technologist who spent some time at Facebook uh, leading data science research and product teams with a focus on improving technology's impact on society. Uh, he is currently the research director at the USC Marshall School's Neely Center, helping to manage the Psychology of Today Institute. That's a very long title when you throw all those things together, uh, where one of the projects that he's been working on recently has been uh, on a design code for social media, which is set up to be a, a kind of best practices, I think, uh, for social media to better serve society. Uh, I will note up front um, that I think this is a really interesting and thought-provoking project, though there are some aspects and some details of it that I am somewhat skeptical of. Uh, and Ravi has made it clear to me in our previous discussions leading up to this podcast that part of his goal is to get me to sign on to this uh, at some point. <laughs> uh, and so I figured that it would be fun to talk through it, get a better understanding of it, and to record it as a podcast as we do. Uh, so Ravi, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Cool. So just to get started for, for listeners, um, do you want to just explain the, the basics of the design code and then we can dig into some of the specifics? And if it helps, like you can explain sort of, you know, how we got here or how did we get to this point where you're, you created this design code? Yeah, so um, I started my career as a programmer. Uh, I wondered why I was programming anything. I, you know, I think I was programming Goldman Sachs phone systems and like who, who had which <laughs> mobile phone and how they were paying with it, and it seemed kind of meaningless. So um, about 
12 years ago, I got a degree in psychology. I, you know, people say in, in grad school, you often study yourself. Um, <laughs> I studied myself. Why does anyone do anything? I ended up working with John Haidt, uh, did some work on polarization. Um, at the same time, I helped a friend of mine start a company called Ranker. And I had this dual career where I was studying polarization. And um, I was also working uh, at Ranker. And I, I called myself our chief data scientist because there was no such thing as data science at the time. So I could, I could take that title confidently. <laughs> um, you know, I had this dual career in tech and uh, academia, and about five years ago, I got recruited to work at Facebook, starting on with work on polarization. And um, you know, I started as a data science manager. Uh, being a data science manager at Facebook, it's kind of like being an accountant. Um, I counted the amount of times that people reported misinformation. Mm -hmm. They viewed things that were considered hate speech. Um, we built dashboards. We built goals for teams. And eventually, I realized that you know we could do that. I mean, we could drive these things to very low numbers, the, the numbers that the platforms report. Um, but we wouldn't necessarily solve the problem because there were a lot of things that users thought were bullying and harassment that users thought were hate speech that we weren't counting as, as those things. And um, so eventually I moved to research. Um, I worked on the civic integrity team. I worked with Francis Haugen for a period of time. Uh, and, uh, you know, I could question you know what is what do users think is causing violence in their community? What do users think uh, is harassment, and how did that map to our definitions? We tried to close many of those policy gaps. We often failed because it's hard to objectively define these things. Like if you know what people say is only a part of what makes something harmful or dangerous. So then eventually I, I started working more on the, the product side towards design solutions. Uh, oftentimes they're the things that get referred to as break the glass measures at companies. Mm -hmm. And so the design code really comes from you know, those practices, like the, the things that platforms did as break the glass measures in elections, in high stress situations, in places like Myanmar and Sri Lanka, where you know, they, platforms are willing to experiment, and and to platforms' credit, some things got some of these things actually got launched permanently. Uh, the reform of the meaningful social interactions metric, the removal of angry reactions and and um, and comment incentives and share incentives for political content. So, I think those principles can be applied not just to Meta, but more widely to YouTube, to TikTok. Uh, since I, I left about a year ago, um, since then I've talked to people at some of these other platforms. They've experienced very similar things. You know, they understand that you know what people engage with isn't always what they want. Uh, there's there's a notion mm -hmm. of quality that is important that is hard to measure, but we we want to be included in our algorithms, and they have different ways of measuring it. And so the design code is really an attempt to codify some of these best practices that um, existed at Meta, that existed at other companies, um, that maybe haven't been done as aggressively as they could be. And 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 so you know there is some role in society to push companies to do this even more. Um, and and so that's uh, you know that's kind of where we are with the design code and how it came to be. Cool. And so do, do you want to talk through a little bit of the design code just so that people are listening, have a sense of like what is included? Like it, it, there are sort of nine different elements to mm -hmm. the design code. I don't know that we need to go through all of them, but but maybe just explaining kind of what some of some of what's in there to, to give people a sense of what's there. Yeah. So, I mean, I think they attempt to address two problems that, you know, uh, platforms often have. Uh, one of them is, you know, the idea that what people engage with is what they want. And so it's it's convenient for platforms to, to you know, lean into that. 
but it's not always true. It's it's maybe correlated and sometimes true, but it's not always true. And there there are classes of content, disgusting content, fight videos, dares, things that like people don't really want to see more of, or they're considered self. Uh, you know, sometimes the analogy I use is kale versus donuts. Um, <laughs> so you know, I will eat donuts, and so I kind of want donuts by one definition of want. I will eat them <laughs> if you put them in front of me, but I don't aspire to eat more donuts. I, I want to eat healthier food, right? And so um, some about it, some of this is just putting those into algorithms. So instead of optimizing for what people engage with, optimize for some perception of quality for important areas of content, um, ask users what they want instead of assuming what they engage with is what they want so that you know they can, they can tell you like, look, I don't want to see more fight videos or disgusting content, even if I will watch them if you put it in front of me. Um, there's also things to stop small groups of users. So there's this other myth about platforms that they're democratic. Um, you know, a lot of times platforms distribution is really dominated by a few voices who post a lot, who get a lot of engagement, who amplify each other's content. And so it's really not democratic and, and small groups of actors can often dominate a space. And those actors often are unhelpful. Um, around uh, COVID times, you know, the anti-vax you know, people, the people in society have different opinions about COVID vaccines, uh, but the common threads were often dominated by people who had anti-vax attitudes, even though most people in society didn't share those attitudes, in part because they were just more active. And we, you know, in society, we wouldn't necessarily let a small group of people dominate a conversation in, in most settings. And so we shouldn't necessarily do that online. So the, the other things in the design code are things like rate limits uh, that, you know, sort of stop small groups of people from dominating the space, looking at broad. Uh, so building on sort of Aviva Vadia's work and Luke Thorburn's work on, on bridging-based ranking, like how can mm -hmm. we get uh, algorithms to consider the diversity of voices rather than like a narrow group of people who are hyper-engaging, pushing the distribution of something. Um, it also talks a little bit about how we protect kids online. So um, uh, privacy defaults. Uh, there's lots of ways that, uh, you know, our kids sign up for some of these platforms. Um, someone in a faraway place is able to contact them. Um, if you know privacy defaults were stronger, maybe that wouldn't be able to happen. If there were rate limits so that those people couldn't like send mass uh, appeals to many people, uh, some of that wouldn't happen. And then uh, finally, there's some things around um, you know how do we you know these are things that I know in part because I've been fortunate to be a part of many experiments where platforms design a, a platform in one way versus another way and understand the difference, the, the causality of, of an experiment. Um, you know, I think we need access to that experimental data if we're going to design, uh, to have design codes, not just for today, but the design codes of tomorrow. And so I think, so it's important for us to have access to that platform experimental data to understand the design choices that platforms are making that maybe aren't uh, included in this current iteration. Yeah, so there's a lot of stuff in there. I'm I'm actually curious. Um, before I dive in on some of that, um, mm -hmm. I assume that there were more potential things that you looked at that you chose not to include. I'm always curious just to, uh, like, what else did you consider that didn't make the cut for this for this code? Yeah, um, I think there's a lot of things you could go more aggressive on. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's issues about platforms where small groups of people want to do terrible things, um, you know, child exploitation content. Um, mm -hmm. I think the design code is really more about the broad incentives. Uh, some amount of bad things will happen um, online and platforms should try to stop those bad things from happening online. But it's really more about, you know, what are platforms incentivizing or how are they designing spaces that encourage those bad things mm -hmm. to happen? Now, the analogy I sometimes use is to building codes. Like we don't hold builders responsible for every bad thing that happens in a building. 
we do hold them responsible if they design a flammable building. So if a building burns down, you know, they're not responsible, but if they use like flammable materials. And so it was really this idea of like, you know, what are the flammable materials the platforms are using rather than trying to stop every bad thing from happening online. There are some things that happen online that are bad that 100% platforms should stop and should try to do. Uh, but that wasn't part of this code. This code really was more about design um, and what are the things that they're incentivizing or by the the way they're designing these platforms and how can we um, you know create some minimum standards so that platforms are not designed in that way. So um, I have to say, like I, I I always dislike analogies <laughs> with the physical world like like that. I understand why and I understand the framing of it of, of like the building code set up but the the major difference i think with sort of social media is that it's not a building it's not a physical thing mm -hmm. and many of the the risks and concerns that we're talking about are speech related which are different mm -hmm. i mean the, the the examples that that get me more upset are the ones that sort of compare to like poisons and toxins mm -hmm. and yeah. oh it's like lead paint or cigarettes or like you know yeah. there was a conversation uh, at an event that i was at you know, maybe a year ago where it was like the conversation mm -hmm. was like between like, is it like, is, is social media more like cigarettes or more, or like chocolate? Mm -hmm. And it was like, it's neither yeah. of those. It's, yeah. it's speech, right? It's conversation. Yeah. And so things happen. And so I worry a little bit just in general mm -hmm. about framing it like, like a building code, which is, mm -hmm. you know, a little bit more specific and, and is not related to user speech. Um, well, I mean, so let's imagine I took a microphone and I put it in the middle of Times Square and I invited, I don't know, a group of high school kids to say whatever they want into that microphone. So that would be speech. And mm -hmm. you can imagine the kinds of things that this group of teenagers would say into this microphone. You know, I think that's the, I think there are ways that you can design spaces where people speak that can encourage or discourage, um, you know, better or worse experiences yeah. for users. And so I think that's the analogy I'm going for. It's not, it's not initially about physical and not physical. It's about design. And there are ways you can sure. design things to encourage or discourage positive or negative outcomes. And, uh, and, and by the way, we're clear in the design code. Like we're not saying that these should all be mandates from on high for government. Like these are right. best practices. Like if you put a microphone in Times Square and ask a bunch of teenagers to say whatever they want in it, you will get predictable outcomes. And <laughs> right, I'm not saying right. that you should put people in jail for doing that, but I think you should just acknowledge that you are going to get predictable negative outcomes. And so people should, you know, whether it's a policy outcome or whether it's just like, just don't do that, please, whoever owns the microphone. Um, you know, I think we should just <laughs> acknowledge that there are ways you can design spaces to be better or worse for the speech that comes out. Right, right. And I think I think there's there's tremendous value in that because I mean at least, you know, and one of the points that I've joked about this for years is like watching like every new platform show up and with with none of this understanding or knowledge or background and assuming that like, oh, like we're the new free speech platform. We're going to allow everybody to do everything. And then very quickly learning that what you've done is set up a microphone in Times Square and given it to a bunch of teenagers and, and you know, not being prepared for that. So I always joke about sort of like, you know, speed running the, the uh, trust and safety learning curve. Um, and so I appreciate anything that sort of like gives, you know, give some of these people some, some of this context um though i will note along those lines like it does not feel that the people who are starting new services seem 
intellectually curious enough many often that's not entirely true and that's not entirely fair but there are many cases that we're seeing where people are starting these kinds of things without um you know without even caring or you know just believing like oh you know my favorite is like oh we're going from first principles you know <laughs> like we're we're redesigning this through ignorance <laughs> is kind of what i hear in those cases so i i, I appreciate that as aspect of it um so, so I, I want to go through a, a few of the, the the things in the design code just to get a better understanding of them and to think through them a little bit. Um, you know, I like, you know, the the, the first one. I, I you know, I just said like I don't like like physical world examples, but I do like your example of like the the donuts versus kale or or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's 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 very evocative and like I I totally understand that and um and, and this idea that like. So, so I think that the the sense of this the first item in the in the design code is this idea that you know if you ask a user do you want more donuts or do you want more kale everyone will say well not everyone but most people will say like I want more healthy food it's just like if the stuff is in front of them you, you can't kind of resist so there is something nice about this idea of like giving users an option to say like hey I I want more of the socially beneficial speech and I don't want the the less and giving that as like a, an instruction effectively and, and then hoping that the the site will fall through um, you know I think and and I'm gonna actually combine this a little bit with the second item in in the design code which is around engagement um, and sort of you know limiting engagement in certain in certain scenarios part, part of my question is, you know, it does do do you think this only well, I have a few different questions, but do you think this only should apply to like a a large enough site that that has scale? Mm-hmm. Um because like if we're talking about smaller sites that are trying to scale, mm-hmm. for one, I just I wouldn't I can't see any of them doing that because you know, yeah. to them it's like if mm-hmm. if we do this we're sort of dead in the water we're never going to reach yeah. the critical mass to to be an ongoing concern so mm-hmm. is this designed just for larger platforms so we explicitly say in the design code and we've gotten input from people who run smaller platforms that they it probably applies more to larger platforms in part because larger platforms often have more of these problems like smaller platforms right. people often know each other there are these norms that exist that you know, that people take turns and that they aren't, there isn't like domination by, you know, there aren't small groups of actors who are trying to dominate a space. You know, there aren't dark PR firms where you are trying right. to do things that you have to protect again. So I think it, does, it definitely applies more to, um, to larger platforms, but I wouldn't say that the dynamic, you know, there are things that smaller platforms can keep in mind as they hope to grow. Um, there right. are some right. dynamics that I think, you know, they, they, as, as they start to see these problems, I think it can give them some ideas of, of things to plan for. And, and I mean, some of this, like, you know, and I, I'm assuming that, you know, obviously some of this is, is influenced by your time at, at Facebook. Um, and, you know, like, you know, things like the engagement stuff, right? I mean, so, mm-hmm. you know, Facebook is always accused of like just optimizing too much on engagement. I think there's clearly some truth to that. I also yeah. think some aspects of it were blown out of proportion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like some of the the stories in the media sort of like misrepresented these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like there is this balance, right? Because I mean, every company wants some level of engagement, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so 
and, and, and at least, you know, and I, I have no idea if you were a part of this or not. And, and, you know, don't talk about what you can't talk about, obviously, but like, you know, one of the things that, that seemed to come out from what I had seen from like, you know, the files that, that Francis released and other stuff, other reporting that's been done is that yes, like Facebook definitely, you know, keyed off of engagement for a while, but they were doing so in ways where they were experimenting and sort of seeing what the the different results were and how they acted. Mm-hmm. And the, the obvious one that, you know, got plenty of attention was like the anger, mm-hmm. right? When, when you, yeah. I forget the exact number, but there were like four or five different emoji reactions mm-hmm. that you could use. Yeah. And, you know, one of them was anger and, and that effectively had a big impact. So that like, yeah. if you were angry all the time, it was, mm-hmm. you know, it would sort of key off of that though. Eventually it feels, it, it appears that <laughs> relatively quickly, it depends on, on mm-hmm. your time scale that you're working with. Like it appeared that Facebook sort yeah. of recognized that that was not the greatest and, and yeah. moved away from that. Yeah. Um, which to me at least also suggests that there is at <clears throat> least, and, and I, you know, there is some self-correcting that happens mm-hmm. in here where like you see these experiments and, and maybe part of the point that you're making that, and this comes, you know, the, the last mm-hmm. point in the design code about sharing, you mm-hmm. know, the research results and, and the experimentation so that people can learn from this stuff. Mm-hmm. But I, I worry, I guess I worry a little bit about these are very complex systems yeah. and there, there are some like larger points that I, I agree with, but I worry a little bit about sort of locking mm-hmm. in certain viewpoints as we're still experimenting and finding stuff. So out. I, uh, I was part of those efforts. You know, I was part of like removing angry actions from meaningful uh-huh. social interactions. I was part of like deprecating angry actions for, uh, uh, deprecating comment and share models, uh, from, uh, and, and I think, you know, the, the, and, you know, Facebook, if you read their blog, there's a recent post by Nick Clegg on like, you know, how mm-hmm. they use AI to recommend content. And they are open that they optimize for engagement. If you can read the signals that are used in the in the algorithms. So I don't think there's like a question like whether they optimize for engagement or not. I mean, there are other signals too, but like engagement is a large part of what they optimize for. I think the question is like what kinds of engagement? Um, mm-hmm. The reason anger reactions are problematic was because you can anger react something that you hate. Like oftentimes right. like people yeah. use yes. it as a dislike, right? So like you're optimizing for things that people actually dislike are indicating this is bad content. And, you know, it was a reasonable thing. Like we don't want to be judging emotions. So like we're going to keep create all the reactions the same, but like, yeah. And I appreciate you give them credit, you know, give us credit for like correcting it, right? Like that mm-hmm. without, before Francis even leaked the documents, there is a self-correction at the company to understand that. Um, you know, so- and then, you know, some of the other things, uh, comments and shares, right? Like, so like, mm-hmm. um, if I have a piece of content that people are commenting back and forth on, that can be a good thing or a bad thing. Um, if it's a piece of health information, um, it mm-hmm. tends to be a worse thing than if it's like a photo of like a night we had out last night. And that's why in the mm-hmm. design code, it talks about, um, you know, for sensitive content, commenting back and forth is not necessarily the right optimization function. And I think that mm-hmm. is sort of, uh, and so you, know, you can think of engagement as a spectrum. There's engagement that, you know, oftentimes means negative things like an angry reaction. There's engagement that's more neutral. Like, I don't know if I like it or dislike that thing. Um, but there's a comment back and forth. I can reshare something because, you know, I can say, look at this terrible thing or look at this crazy thing that happened that I don't actually like want to incentivize that kind of content. And then there's engagement that actually indicates I, I like that thing. I want more of that thing. I right. like a, a love reaction. You notice like, those are not the things that got taken out of some of these engagement algorithms, right? right. So, so 
some part of it is building upon. So the first thing in the design code talks about asking users what they want. And in psychology terms, it's like system one versus system two. It's your aspirational right, self. Right. Appealing to your aspirational self as opposed to your sort of like lizard brain, you know, what does it pay attention to self, right? Um, and I think we've learned through those experiments, through the things that you mentioned, the nuance that you've you've seen the companies work through, some of these first principles that like there is a difference between what we aspire to and what we engage with, and that some signals are better at eliciting that, like a love reaction or a see more, see less than a comment or an anger reaction. And we have seen also, and that's design code number two, that this is especially true for important classes of content. Like, so, you know, comments back and forth might be fine for a dance video, but comments back and forth about political content or health content mm -hmm. actually tends to be indicative and, and set the wrong incentives for the ecosystem. And that's where you, know, you get political actors uh, who say that they are incentivized to do more divisive things because of those incentives, right? Like they say, like they, they put out more divisive stuff things because it does better. And that's where, you know, I don't think social media is responsible for all the bad things that happen in the world, but I do think they're responsible for that. When a, when a, a political actor who does, you know, hundreds of A-B tests about what does better or worse on the platform says that they are producing more divisive content because you are incentivizing comments back and forth. Mm -hmm. That is something that you have a responsibility to fix. And that's some part of the design code. So it's not saying like, don't. it doesn't say in the design code, don't optimize for engagement at all. It says, don't optimize for these neutral signals and optimize for some notion of quality um, for important content. And then allow users to indicate things they engage with that they do or do not want, right? So things like, um, you know, you know, optimize for a love reaction, don't optimize mm -hmm. for like um, an anger reaction. And, and I wonder, I mean, so, you know, you said some of the thinking behind this was driven by like, you know, conversations with other platforms like YouTube and TikTok in sort of thinking through these things. You know, part of what strikes me is I, I do wonder how much more broadly these these do apply because there are certainly other platforms that take very different approaches and i'm thinking of things like you know there's wikipedia or reddit or you know github you know that that just have like very very different approaches you know i think it was like i can't remember how long ago maybe a year or two ago where i like tried to create like a test suite of you know alternatives beyond Facebook and YouTube and Instagram and TikTok that like, you know, anyone, this was, this was more based on, you know, the, the, you know, regulatory approaches to things where it's like, well, let's, let's run these kinds of companies, you know, or these kinds of platforms through that regulatory approach. Do they make sense? Um, and so like, how how much thought have you given to to like you know let's take reddit for example you know reddit you have you have different subreddits which have their own rules and you have the sort of official overall administrative rules at the at the higher level but also you have just these all these very different communities with different focuses and and sort of it, you know to some extent there's like an opt in uh, of the the members of that community and they take into account different things and so, like, I'm I'm looking at this and wondering, you know, does this even apply to something like Reddit? So, I'm at a little bit of a disadvantage because I'm not an avid Reddit user, but okay. I will tell you, I mean, some things. Uh, so, when we were at Meta, one thing we uh, experimented with was upvote downvote. Uh, so yeah. we put little Reddit-like signals, and 
Um, we also put a little X in the upper right of some posts to let people uh, indicate things they dislike. And so one thing Reddit has is a, is a negative signal and some yes. idea of reputation, which I think is helpful. And and so I think the idea that, Re you know, I I'm not going to say Reddit was like an amazing, an amazing place where nothing bad happens, but I do think that having some notion of reputation and negative feedback is important in the ecosystem. And I think we can learn that from Reddit. We can apply it, you know, to uh, parts of Meta where like the little X in the upper right that allows people to give negative feedback to posts also applies. And then we can think more generally about the role of reputation and negative feedback in society to stop people from, you know, doing things that, you know, th there's an accountability that is not enforced by the government or by a censor, you know, it's enforced by other people who say, you know, like, I didn't like the thing you did. And so we don't amplify things that large groups of people don't like. So, um, I do think that many of these principles and, and again, I'm open, you know, I'm open to <laughs> learning more things and evolving them. And they have evolved through many conversations. So right. I'm, I'm open to evolving them. But, you know, I have talked to people at YouTube who, you know, they, they've written about how they optimize for quality in surveys. Almost every company has some notion of uh, surveying people to get that signal about what people aspire to want or what they think is quality um, to complement signals because they know that the engagement signals do not always capture what people think of as quality, right? So that, so that is a somewhat universal thing that, you know, many companies do. Um, and so I, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm open to discussing like what applies and certainly everything does not apply in all contexts. Like some platforms might already right. be doing some of these things, but the general principles of like, how do we stop small groups of users from, you know, dominating the space? How do we ask people what they want versus assuming what they engage with is what they want? Like those things I think are, are fairly universal. Right. Right. There is, you know, and, and this is something I've been thinking about. Maybe this goes way outside of the scope of, of what you're working on and feel free to say like that. Ah, that's, that's beyond, <laughs> beyond what we're, we're thinking about. You know, I, there is an element of all of this that I fear is like the, some of the bad incentives for the platforms to like optimize on, on engagement, including problematic engagement is, is driven by, their funders and you know for for smaller private companies vcs that you know need to see the hockey stick growth and mm -hmm. for larger public companies wall street that just looks mm -hmm. you know real hard at the numbers and gets really upset when when they see oh you know engagement is going down and there's some sort of problem here and and that in some sense you know, locks in the platforms in in some aspects um, that that you know pressure them into into doing these things because numbers need to go up. Um, do do you have concern or or like is there some hope that this acts as like some you know? So let me take one step back further back from that. Like my argument, and I've been trying to make this argument mostly to deaf ears for a long time, is that like the investors should should want long-term sustainability mm -hmm. and viability and that 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 kind of engagement tends to lead to shorter term mm -hmm. uh, viability and sustainability but like is there something in this design code that you think you know enacts acts as like an inoculation that that mm -hmm. you know if if someone signs on to this that they can show that to investors like this is our plan our plan is to you know mm -hmm be more focused on on civic good and and have sort of a more of a long-term view or is that yeah. out of scope no it's it's in scope certainly so one thing we also work on at uh the neely center is uh we work on measurement of user experience mm -hmm. 
because we do think that these things should show up in user experience. Uh, and you know, you might've seen in like Arturo Bahar's recent testimony, like there's a delta between what users experience and then the, the metrics that platforms report. And so one nice thing about user experience is anyone can measure it out in society. So I think we can hold platforms accountable for the user experiences, positive and negative, right? So like, you know, people learn a lot on YouTube. Like there's a lot of positive things that happen online too. Yep. And we, we want to give them credit for the things that they're doing positive um, and hold them accountable for the negative things. Like a lot of people have negative experiences on Twitter one reason why I feel a little bit more comfortable saying like maybe it's not designed right or the norms aren't right is because uh, people also don't have many positive experiences. They're not saying they're learning a lot. People say they learn a lot on YouTube. And so if they have some negative experiences, you know, that's part of, of uh, exploration. But but I think, so I think, um, you know, that is part of it. And the second thing, I, I don't know if you caught in uh, Jeff Horwitz's book, um, there was like recent findings that, uh, you know, in the long term, some of these changes, if you improve the user experience, you might lose some engagement in the short term, but actually in the mm -hmm. long term, you actually gain, it actually might right. be in the bent to the benefit of these platforms, right? So, you know, what you said about like, you know, there is short term pressure on companies to keep increasing users and engagement. Um, you know, I think part of it is also hopefully to point a direction where they can have long term sustainable businesses and, and to illuminate the kinds of changes that may lead to long term growth, even if they take a short-term hit. So maybe creating space for that mm -hmm. more longer-term thinking as opposed to the, the shorter-term engagement optimization that, that naturally occurs. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. And it's like, it's certainly not the best example for a variety of reasons, but I've pointed to in the past, like Amazon and Jeff Bezos in, in the early years, like he just went out there very publicly and was like, we're going to lose money for a while because we're investing in all of these things to build a better overall experience. And like Wall Street hammered him in the early 2000s. People forget this because, you know, now they think, oh, it's just this giant company. But they were like, you're never going to survive. You have to squeeze more money out of every user. And he's like, no, we're not going to. We're, we're like when when Amazon Prime and again, these are you know, in modern day, the, these are perhaps problematic examples. But like when Amazon Prime launched, Wall Street slammed the company. And they're like, this is the dumbest thing. You are going to lose so much money on this. It is such a wasteful thing. And and Bezos said, like, straight up, like, yes, we're going to lose money at the beginning, but it will make a more loyal customer. Nowadays, right now, they're, you know, getting hit for, for, for that and having antitrust issues with that. But, you know, I, th I always think it is interesting how he was willing to step out and say that. And it's interesting to see that like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, for example, hasn't really done that, even though he's, you know, he's invincible <laughs> in some sense, you know, he sort of structured the board uh, and his control of the board in a way that, that he's, he's pr pretty locked in there. He could come out and say like, we're going to take a short-term hit um, for, for long-term advantage, but he hasn't, I don't think he's really done that. Um so. Yeah, I mean, I I think um, you know, there are times when I think these platforms are unfortunately conservative about saying, you know, they have done things that I think are beneficial, right, and right. have cost them revenue, right. and then because they always get hit in the press, they don't talk about them in the ways that they could. So, uh, for example, um, you know, many people have complained about political content on on Facebook being like tiring, toxic, right. Um, right. You know the the Wall Street Journal article about them reforming some of those incentives, uh, removing comments and share models. That led to le less people using the platform, but people perceiving the quality of the content that was left to be better, and that cost them money in the short term. Um, there's certainly like a self interested like it's it's not good to tire your users out on political discussions. Right. But you know 
you could argue that that was done to you know in a in a in a way that you know had the long term interests of the platform and users in mind, but for some reason the company never really made that argument in a coherent way to say like look we are we are trying to do like the right long term thing. I think you know to the platform's uh, you know defense um, because they get so much crap no matter what they do. I think they've somewhat given up on um, and so you know one reason why we did the design code, you know, we, we got, um, you know, John Hyde and Francis Haugen and, and Center for Humane Tech to sign it, you know, some of the worst critics, um, because we want the platforms to sit to, you know, to have some incentive to do these things. And then if they do these things, I would love to go back to those people and say like, look, can we actually give them some positive praise um, so that there's a positive incentive and they don't learn the lesson that no matter what they do, they're going to get hit, but they learn the lesson, like there are positive things they could do that society would give them credit for. Right, right. Um, so a, a few other, to dig into some of the, a couple of the other things in the design code, um, you know, you have, you know, the, there's this one prioritize public amplification to actors that varied users explicitly know and trust. Um, I, I'm, I'm a little curious, like, how, how do you think that, that gets implemented in practice that that one felt like there's there's a lot that you could fit into that you know a wide variety of users explicitly know and trust like because you know i mean what we've certainly seen over the last few years are that people that i would argue a you know a, a wide variety of people knew and trusted you know that went away or that, you know, there would be sort of attacks that would challenge their credibility on things. And it just, it almost became, you know, I, I almost wonder if like doing that sort of thing almost puts targets on the backs of those to, to sort of like undermine and discredit the, the people that you decide are worth amplifying. And so I, I just wonder if there are downstream concerns about that kind of approach as well. I mean, so the, the, details of that are not meant for platforms to decide who who wins and loses, but for mm -hmm. it to be based on users. So right now, um, users decide who gets amplification through engagement signals. And those are often right. driven by narrow groups of people, as opposed to broad groups of people. So a, a tiny group of people can make something go viral, even though that thing might be you know, distasteful to a larger group of people. Now, sometimes that's appropriate. We don't want like minority opinions to never be to go be right. broadcast. But we do want some bar. And so this is inspired a lot by, again, the, the work on bridging-based ranking. Um, it's even just basic wisdom of crowds, right? Like varied users make better decisions than narrow users, right? And so if you have, mm -hmm. what do varied users respect and think is high quality information, you're going to get better information than narrow users. Um, you know, we, we didn't specify it. You could you could draw that line more aggressively, like how varied should a group of users be before you amplify it. But at the very least, it shouldn't be a super narrow group of users because that's when you get like information operations and and uh, you know really narrow groups right. of people like pushing messages that aren't helpful to the to the broader ecosystem. So, uh, so but it's not meant for people for platforms to decide like who wins right. and loses. It's meant to alter the algorithms that exist today. So I mean, you know. I mean, one example of that, which, you know, is maybe like the, the, the most public example. And it's actually, it's an interesting one. is like the Twitter and community notes. Like, do you consider that to be, you know, that, that, I mean, that's a little bit different, right? Because that's less about amplification and more about like sort of fact checking, but like it's built on this algorithm that is designed to sort of only the information is designed to only go public 
if a wide variety of users agree with what's in there? Um, is that is that a kind of example yeah. of, of uh, yeah you- that is I mean and so I mean that's something that's applied after something right. has been checked as misinformation. So in some ways, it's, it's it's to a narrow group of content. And so the impact of it is not as broad as it could be. Right. But certainly you get better community notes by having that algorithm than you would right. if you didn't have that algorithm. If you, can, you can imagine community notes without that you know, right. idea of yes. like, it would be terrible, right? It would just be, yes. it would be unusable, right? So so certainly that that algorithm improves community notes. I'm not saying community notes is perfect, but it's at least better than it would be without it. And so would algorithms that amplify content. If you And, and community notes is a good example of that uh, benefit. And so um, let me go into one that's like one of the items in the design code that I think is a little bit more controversial and um, not convinced by which is the 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 eighth one on the device-based parental controls uh and i know that like like facebook itself actually recently came out in favor of of exactly this um and talked about like putting you know putting that into law which you know to some extent felt to me like pushing this issue off on google and apple uh who who run the app stores and was just like sure we support like parental controls as long as it's google and apple that are doing it not us um but that that's a slightly different thing but like you know there are all sorts of concerns that i think people have raised and i think they're legitimate that that like you know what is the role of parents in in some of these situations and in many cases certainly parents have their kids best interests in mind but there are a large group of cases where that may not be true and and the most obvious one is if you have an lgbt lgbtq child in a household where the parents are not accepting of that um is that a situation where parental controls are acceptable and you know just as as an example like i only recently learned that the trevor project which you know aims to help um you know, to help kids in those situations has their own social network, which I think is great. But like in, in that world, you know, there are going to be an awful lot of parents of kids who would right now find the Trevor Project's social network incredibly powerful and useful, who would never be able to access it under a world in which the parental controls are in place. So I think there's a couple things to unpack there. Like, um, so one is just, uh, you know, it, it was an attempt to get at issues of how do we identify who is a kid or who's not a kid. Right. Um, and some of the features that this would apply to, I think, are less controversial. There are things like uh, infinite scroll, autoplay. Um, you know, should we give, you know, a kids often will add friction. You know, there's a recent common sense media study where like, you know, kids will talk about how they will add their own friction. And, and I guess some adults do this too, right? Because they, they know that they're using the, these systems more than they want to do. And so, you know, we don't necessarily want these systems to be, um, you know, cutting into their sleep time, which many kids also say happens, mm-hmm. right? So, so there's, there's like less controversial, not content-based things that these things can apply to. And device-based parental controls is really just meant to, um, make it so that, uh, you know, to the, uh, I think privacy advocates are, are convincing that like, we don't want people checking IDs. We don't want every single app checking IDs. We need to do it in right. one place. Um, so that, uh, you know, we, we aren't, um, you know, having people checking IDs to, you know, read a crime story on NPR, right? Like it's just, there's Orwellian, uh, instances that can occur with other solutions. Right. So then there's the situation of like, should parents, um, be deciding anything for kids at all. And I guess, I mean, I have three kids. Um, 
I think, um, you know, there is certainly, it's certainly true that some parents are not, do not have their best interests of their kids in mind. But I, I do think that the role we have for parents in society is one where they are, their role is to have, is to protect their kids, to make decisions sure. for their kids. Um, we don't say anything about what age. Uh, we just, you know, like you can buy your, your kid a kid phone, you can buy your kids a, a, a not a kid phone, and you can decide what age is appropriate for whichever thing. Um, it's meant really just to be a tool for parents. And, you know, could parents misuse this tool? Uh, we have gotten that feedback from some groups who say that, like, you know, we don't really believe in parental controls at all. Um, and I, you know, I think that's a reasonable point. I mean, it's just a question of like, you know, the trade-offs, right? False positives versus false negatives. Um, right. I think most parents do have the interests of their kids in mind and therefore you will do a lot of benefit for, by, by, you know, uh, by providing that functionality and that ability of parents to protect their kids. I think kids, parents want that. Um, I think that most of the ways it would be applied would hopefully be in the realm of design, things like mm -hmm. infinite scroll, autoplay, optimizing for engagement, as opposed to in the realm of content. You know, they can't access content about this thing. They can't access this particular website. Um, but, um, you know, certainly that's a risk. It's just one I think is mitigated by the the other side of the equation. Yeah. I, I mean, part, part of me wonders too, like how much of that is, should be incumbent on the on the platforms versus third parties as well, right? I mean, there are tools like Apple provides tools and, and there are third party tools as well for like, you know, screen time limits and app limits and, and things like that. And like, uh, you know, I'm not saying that the, the platforms themselves shouldn't consider these things, but like, it almost feels like, you know, the better option is is for there to be third party tools, and then like to get back to the question of like parents and, and best interest, and like you know, you know, I'm thinking like you know, you talk about books or something, right? So you could see a situation where parents might not allow certain books within the home, but a, a child might be able to go to the library and and find books. And so again, I'm I'm thinking about cases where where kids are in homes where parents are are disapproving of of you know who they are what they're doing um you know handling those situations is is really important and you know i i do worry still about, i understand you're saying like there is no perfect solution um but i worry in the process of doing that that like these are often the most marginalized kids and the most at risk kids and there is a real risk of making life worse for them. Um, and I, yeah. yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't, I acknowledge that risk, right. I'm, I'm, I'm certainly yeah. that is possible. I'm um, just to like mitigate it a little bit. Um, you know, there's a difference between saying like kids cannot do a thing on law and saying like, if a parent buys a phone that has identified as a child phone, then, right. um, the, these apps will work in a different way because similar to the book analogy, like you can go get a phone that isn't a kid's phone. If, if you're really motivated right. to do right. that, it is, it is not like, um, people in society are going to stop you from doing that. It's just like, um, and, and part of the reason, you know, one stat that I was convinced by is, uh, um, there's a study about like kids and their exposure to like pornography online. And a lot mm -hmm. of uh, the average age is around 12 when kids mm -hmm. see that. And a lot of kids are actually experiencing it um, accidentally. They're not trying to see right. sexual content. They're, they're seeing it because 
maybe they're curious or it's just, it's just, I mean, if you've been on yeah. some of these services, it's hard to uh, avoid. Maybe it's not pure nudity, but it's, it's very, you know, sure. you're going to see sexual content on, on these sites. Um, I think that, you know, there's a value to just stopping. If, if a 16 year old boy wants to see sexual content, they're going to figure out some way to see sexual content. Right. But, but can we stop a 13 year old or a 14 year old who doesn't really want to see it from, you know, so I think there's a lot of kids who would welcome a safer experience that, mm-hmm. you know, these things aren't going to happen. Things are optimized for quality, not for engagement. There are better privacy defaults. So like user kids with themselves will tell you like a lot of things you would use it for is to like not have strangers be able to contact them. Right. Like, right. like kids don't want strangers to be able to contact them. They don't want um, locations to be shared publicly. Like yep. there are some features that kids don't want that some of these apps have. And, you know, just so, yes, I mean, there, there are, there is the case where like, a parent could control a, a child's experience in a way that is harmful. I think, you know, in many of those cases, uh, a, a kid might be able to get around it, you know, get get a device in the same way that mm-hmm. they can find a book that is not in there. But there's a large number of kids on the opposite side who are having these experiences that are not wanted, who would welcome a kid's phone and, and parents would welcome it. And so I think you just have to trade those two situations off. And, and yeah, nothing is a perfect solution, but... Um, you know, I, I, I think on balance, uh, as compared to, you right. know, something's going to happen with kids. Like, I don't think the, the status quo is tenable as far as uh, kids' relationships to technology. So uh, of all the solutions that are provided, I think, uh, you know, this is the one we stand behind. Right. No, I, I understand that. I mean, I have this sort of general sense that, like, I still think that there there's there's a different kind of approach that, that should be explored as well. This is getting, I'll, I'll make this brief and we can, we can, it might be getting too far away, which is like my fear too, with, with some of those approaches and some of this idea is that, you know, I've sort of referred to it as like, like the Disneyland problem where it's like, you know, Disneyland is a fun place for kids, but you would never want to raise your kids in Disneyland. And then when they turn 18, like set them loose in the real world. Cause like, it's it's not the real world i think there's something to be said for like teaching kids how to you know in an age appropriate way as they grow how to be online and to recognize that sometimes you're going to come across content that is unhealthy or problematic and again there are ways to do that in an age appropriate way but to giving them the tools to to how do you deal with that how do you you know avoid that content if you do come across it, how do you deal with it? Do you need to, do you tell an adult? Do you, um, you know, whatever. There are lots of issues there and lots of concerns in in terms of like, how does that work? And, and, you know, again, different ages, different, different scenarios. I worry a little bit about this idea that it's like that the parents roles effectively to, to, to block access to things um, as opposed to teaching the kids how, you know, how how to respond and how to deal with it when they come across I mean, it. Just to maybe we this could be like a constructive feedback that we should write it differently because like the goal is really not block access. Right. Um, I, and I think we added something about appropriate defaults because I think what we really want most people are not going to change the defaults. Like most people are right. not going to actually yeah. fiddle with things and block any app or like it's too complex and parents don't do it now because it's it's too complex. They're not going to like change the settings for TikTok and change the settings for Instagram and change the setting. Like no one's going to do that. Right. So, so I, the, the goal was for you buy a kid's phone and right. you get the package of 
kid-friendly features, which means like not optimizing for engagement, which means privacy defaults, which means um, you know strangers can't contact you. Uh, yep, yep. Um, and and so hopefully those defaults would would be um, you know would really change that experience in a way that would uh, without like that some of those other issues coming into play. Yeah, and yeah, and conceptually, I mean, I think I think that that makes sense. I just worry about the details, I guess. And, yeah. and, 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 you know, how, We're still how that working actually them out, plays so. out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and like, you know, we've had examples of this in the past and, and obviously I think what you're talking about is a little bit more sophisticated, but like you, know, you go back 15, 20 years and they were like, you know, these filters that you could, you know, pre smartphone, right. So you would, you would get these filters for your computer and they would be like child friendly filters and they were historically terrible. Right. I mean, they would block access to useful information and allow access to, to other information. You know, I mean, tech dirt has been blocked by some of these filters for being mm -hmm. like harmful content. It's like, come on. I mean, yeah. it's just, you know, but, but, you know, so yeah, I mean, that's just one that I'm, I'm sort of, concerned about I, I you know i do think again there's like a lot of really interesting stuff here and a lot of things that are, are really thoughtful um and i think are useful for people to think about and it's useful for people to know about um it's just that yeah the like specific implementations of them mm -hmm. are you know really big questions and then it's like you know i also like i'm not entirely clear on why you chose certain things as opposed to other things so like you know there's nothing in here about you know, user controls like block and mute, which have mm -hmm. become like really important tools for people to, to avoid mm -hmm. certain kinds of harassment. Um, not all mm -hmm. obviously. Um, but so like, that's something that's like, if I were looking at this and, and other mm -hmm. people were looking at this, they might say like, well, how come that's not on there? What made yep. you prioritize these other features and saying like, it should have yeah. these features as opposed to things like that. Yeah, I mean, one thing we say about it is like it's not a maximal list of uh, everything that everyone would want, and certainly there's like um, there's just a little bit of like a process thing where it's like mm -hmm. you get a bunch of people to sign a thing, and then like someone comes up with another idea, and like <laughs> do I go back to everybody who signed the thing and be like, right, do you agree with right. this new thing, and like you know, so it's it's hard to like think of all the things that everyone could agree on, and and certainly we didn't you know aspire to capture everything that sure. everyone would want because otherwise you could never get people to to agree right so uh certainly yeah that that possibly is like a miss that we could have added that um so and then the other thing we say is that like a lot of the things in there are active research areas so right. um you know we think people should not optimize for engagement but optimize for quality for political content for example um, mm -hmm. and, and every time I've seen people do that, it has led to benefits in the ecosystem. So I, I feel yep. confident yep. to say that's a good thing. Um, how you do that is not settled, right? Like, do you use surveys? Yep. Do you put in the user interface? What are the questions you ask? How do you do it? It's, there are companies, you know, who I think need to talk to each other to figure out those best practices. And, and so, right. you know, we don't know exactly how to do all of these things, but just the aspiration and the attempt will have benefits for, for everyone. Yeah. I, and I don't disagree with that. And, and. So, I mean, I guess just as a final, final question, because we should wrap this up, you know, I, I would almost ask like, how much, like, I, I think you're right. Like there's research go ongoing in all of these areas. And I think that research is really useful. And the more that we learn, the better. Um, but like, w would this almost be better in, in my mind, maybe, but I, I'm curious to hear your take. If this were more framed as like a research agenda rather than a design code, where it's like these are areas that we think are important. There should be more research, and the more we learn, the more we can feedback. And you could like I don't even know how you would set it up, but like have try and get you know 
different platforms to sort of subscribe to the research agenda, provide mm-hmm. more data, help us out with it and learn from it so that we can all share the results of this. And maybe that's really what this is. And it's just sort of framed as a design code, but like um, it's, it's a different yeah. approach, right? Yeah. Uh, so let me just say unequivocally it is not meant to be a research agenda. It is meant to be a design code on, <laughs> okay. on purpose uh, because uh, so even though I don't think there's, Exact, we know exactly how to optimize for quality. I do think we have enough experimental evidence from platforms. You know, a lot of it's in the Facebook papers. Um, it's been done. You know, it's it's hard to. It's not in the scientific literature, unfortunately, because it's 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 locked within some of these organizations. But some of it's become more public. There is enough evidence that optimizing for engagement for political content and, and other sensitive content areas has negative effects. And when you replace those optimizations for some notion of user quality, even if we don't know exactly how to do it, it will have a benefit to the ecosystem. So I don't think we need to research that. I, I, we also know that like small groups of actors are manipulating these systems because there are not, not rate limits. And so platforms will introduce rate limits in elections. And that has benefits for the ecosystem. And we know that, right? So some of these things are not in my opinion, open research questions. They are things we know and platforms should do. Now, exactly where to draw the line for the rate limits, exactly how do we measure quality? Those are open research questions and people should study. But the actual, like, and so, you know, the way we frame it in the design code is that, you know, platforms should do these things. They should tell us how they're doing these things. And then we can learn from each other about exactly how we're doing these things. Like, what is the rate limit you set, right? Like Mm -hmm. we say, like, you should set a sensible rate limit. I can't tell you exactly what the rate limit should be for every functionality. What should be the rate limit for contacting strangers, for inviting people to groups? But just tell us what that rate limit is and how you set it and why you think it's sensible. And then we can have a conversation about it. Uh, And I think that we know will have benefits for the ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. No, interesting. I mean, as I said, like it's it's definitely. I'm I'm glad it's out there. I think it's really thought provoking. I think it's worth thinking about and and looking at. Um, You know, I I have my concerns on the margins about it, but um, I'm glad that you're doing it. And, uh, and I hope more people see it and talk about it. So, um, and, uh, and and thanks. So thanks for working on it. Thanks for, for taking the time, joining the podcast and answering my questions about it. No, I mean, thanks. Thanks for your feedback. I mean, it it is not a static thing. I mean, like it, it, we, we happy to take feedback and happy, you know, one reason I wanted to come on was because, uh, I've appreciated the thoughtfulness with which you attack these issues. And um, I did not expect you to agree with every uh, aspect of it, but I think it's constructive. I think it's helpful to like listen and, and hear like what where you can do things better, frame things differently. Um, and so I definitely appreciate the conversation. Yeah, yeah. So again, thanks. Thanks for, for joining us. And uh, thanks everyone for listening as well. And we'll be back next week. To grab a shovel and think of the cat. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. To grab a shovel and think of the cat. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. To grab a shovel and think of the cat.